I'd like to welcome you to the fifth in the series on complexity and systemic risk uh, seminar series uh, run here in the 21st century school uh, in collaboration with the Cabinet Complexity Center and also the Institute for Science, Innovation and Society. Uh, since we're now slightly past the halfway point, perhaps it's a good idea to remind you of what we were trying to do with the seminar series. First focus is in line with the interests of the 21st century school to think about some of the major challenges and problems of the 21st century school, uh, of the 21st century century, sorry, and the second, of course, is to think about how complexity and, and a complex systems approach can contribute to an understanding of these problems and possible solutions. And today's talk, which in the subtitle, which I don't think is behind me, but you will probably have seen, refers to pandemics. Well, obviously, pandemics and dealing with global pandemics is, is, is one such major challenge and one such major topic. I'm extremely pleased today to uh, welcome Alessandro Vespignani from uh, Indiana University Bloomington here uh, from the School of Informatics. Uh, uh, Alex is, uh, is perhaps an excellent illustration of uh, both an interdisciplinary career trajectory as well as somebody contributing to this area. He started life um, as a physicist having uh, done a PhD at La Sapienza in Rome, and uh, many people will probably uh, know him for uh, his work on the internet and a, a book that uh, many people have read on the uh, evolution of the internet, looking at the structure of the internet. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that, so that, that his interest in the internet and the possibility of epidemic spread of things like viruses and worms on the internet uh, eventually became an interest in how uh, epidemics might work out uh, in the real world where one's thinking about uh, biological agents rather than informatic agents. Uh, and so in some sense it's, it's a move from computer science and informatics having been trained in physics to thinking about epidemics while taking into account things like transport networks, which I think is as interdisciplinary as you can conceivably get. So without taking any further time away from our speaker, I'd like to hand over to Alex. Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> thank you, Felix, for the nice introduction. Uh, thank you for attending this talk. Uh, yeah, the title is a provocation. Predicting is a strong word, I know. And uh, I'll try to discuss what I mean by predicting and uh, what are actually the limitations that we find in predictions? Uh, I will the, the outline of the of the talk, if you want, is I, I will try to first to give you a perspective of, uh, of of what are our you know vision on that, and then I will go into the example of uh, of epidemics, epidemiology, and and then I will also uh, make uh, actually uh, the real example of what happened with the last uh, with the last pandemic uh, the past year actually still uh, a bit going on. Uh, first of all, let me apologize to all people who are experts in various, uh, uh, of the various areas I will, I will go through. Uh, uh, the, the, the one to blame is Felix that told me to, to not to, 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 to get into technical details or too much uh, uh, formalism. Uh, but of course, I would be happy to, to, to then to discuss any kind of, of, of details uh, you want to you want to know on, on, on what I'm going to to, to present. Uh, and then another few things is the acknowledgement of many collaborators. Uh, 
this the project I will I will show you the, 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 the would have been not possible without the funding of many agencies and collaboration across basically the world, uh, from uh, uh, the United States in my group, but then in Italy, France, uh, and, and many other, other places, Spain, and so on and so forth. Uh, prediction. Well, weather forecast is a good example of prediction, or at least is what we uh, we are so used to, to, to weather forecast that actually nowadays we are very we are always complaining. You know, we, we just push a button on the internet and we get what is the, the what will be the weather in, in our backyard. And in many cases, you know, these predictions are wrong. Well, they are statistically measured. And if you think about the microclimate uh, uh, of your backyard or your town, of course, there. You know, it's very difficult to do good prediction. However, it's also because we are spoiled. Because one way or another, we know what will be the temperature. We know if it's going to be cloudy and rainy or not, etc., etc. Uh, what is most important, however, in terms of anticipation and forecast, is not really the regular things. What we are interested in, what I think is striking in the weather forecast business, is this one. So. You can project and anticipate the pattern of a hurricane. Of course, it's a statistical exercise. Again, you know, here, you know, these are projections of the touchdown of a hurricane, and of course, there is a good amount of statistical uncertainty on where it will, will be the touchdown, and also the strength of the touchdown might vary a lot. However, this kind of exercise really tells you a lot, and you know, help to save thousands of lives because you know you can evacuate cities you can prepare cities to the touchdown then of course in some cases it doesn't uh, it, you know you are wrong but in the case that you are right you know in general you really do uh, a very good job and so you know in the, this sense you know uh, when I mean prediction I mean you know try to evaluate uh, extreme situation in which you know there, there are big society risk human lives involved and of course, this exercise is very important. Well, if you think about weather forecast, this is probably what they really define the most interdisciplinary exercise that the scientific community has done, probably. Now, this is something that starts centuries ago with just the basic law of uh, kinetic, uh, the kinetic of gases, you know, 400 years ago. And then you have two points, and then you have to, to write the constitutive equation that I was showing in these slides, this crazy equations, uh, then you need data. Because without data, you cannot do any weather forecast. And well, you know, there, is a there has been a collective effort that has created weather stations around the world. And then we have started to connect all these weather stations in order to exchange data in real time. And then at a certain point, it was so clear that we had to send satellite in orbits, you know, and get the complete uh, whatever image of the, 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 the values uh, uh, of the atmosphere, etc., etc. All that uh, would be pointless without supercomputing, because you would do your prediction one month after the event. So you know you really need supercomputer that can tell you real time. That are able to anticipate the pattern of the, of the hurricane. Uh, at the same time, you need a bit of uh, uh, you need a lot of mathematics. You need chaos theory to understand what is your predictability window. 
we know that you know you, we cannot do forecast more than two weeks in advance, you know, because because there is chaotic effect and we cannot, uh, we don't know the, the the initial condition well enough to project for longer time and so on and so forth. So the question here that several people start to ask is, well, why we are not able to do the same? Well, it starts with emerging diseases. Well, and now I have to be clear uh, on what I mean. I don't mean to, uh, no one has a crystal ball, right? There are people who are trying to have the crystal ball to guess what will be the next emerging disease and where it will uh, appear. You know, well, for instance, uh, the, the Institute of uh, Angela McLean is, is, is trying to do that, you know. They work at the microscopic level on, on, on the genes of the, of the diseases in order to try to you know, to, to get, you know, uh, to, 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 to get the evolution of the virus. But leaving that aside and moving in the fact that we know that there has been an outbreak of a disease with 10, 20, 50, 1,000 cases in a certain place of the world. Why we are not able to project the disease uh, dynamics and anticipate the spreading worldwide of that disease. If you think in terms of computational power, we're talking about six billion individuals in the world. So that's not something that is scaling more computationally. If you think in terms of uh, theoretical tools, well, mathematical biology and mathematical epidemiology has a huge tradition, so there is everything. So we know a lot, we really know a lot. There are models that we could use and implement, etc., etc. And actually, you know, there are a lot of prediction. We constantly, you know, mathematical epidemiologists and epidemiologists uh, do prediction on, on, on diseases. But why we are not able to do something that, in a way, is so accurate as weather forecast? Well, this can be translated to other areas, not just epidemiology. And so let me tell you about an example that is close to my heart, the internet. Uh, <coughs> in the next 10 to 15 years, probably about 1.5 billion people will join the internet. Uh, if you ask practitioners in the fields what will happen to the internet because of that, and I, I mean uh, the 1.5 billion are in China and India basically, if you, and, I, and you ask to the practitioner what will happen to the internet, you find the all possible spectrum of options from the very gloomy ones telling you that the border gateway protocol that uh, basically govern the, 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 the communication on the internet will collapse and the internet will uh, fail and, and, and break a piece. To other people that tells that basically the system will never realize of these 1.5 billion people joining the internet, it will self-adapt, etc., etc., etc. So, however, there is no way, any scenario that you can depict, there is no way to access in a quantitative way. Uh, another thing that is very close to the heart instead of funding agencies, why we are not able to predict with a, a bit of anticipation, not too much, what are the areas of science worth investing in? You know, if you talk with people at NSF, I don't know in the UK, but you know, at NSF, NIH, this is the holy grail, you know, they would like to know, you know, maybe five years than what they are able to do now, what are the areas in which they should put money to really, you know, propel 
the science, the advance in, 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 uh, in certain fields, critical fields. Well, you know that there are tons of data on our scientific endeavor. So you know there are uh, now digital records of how we collaborate, grants, uh, uh, papers, etc., etc. So why we cannot rationalize all that in models that somehow are quantitatively enough predictive? Well, the main issue is is the following, you know, because all of the problem that I mentioned contains uh, a social component that probably is the most difficult problem that we face. So, it's, we are talking about us, our behavior, and, you know, it's, I think I consider it, this a, a bit of a paradox, that we were able to send a man on the moon, but if you ask people how we commute every day from our place to work, there are no global data. So, you know, there are a few countries that have very good map of that, but then for what happens in the rest of the world, you have very far and it, I'm talking about something that is so simple, every census bureau should know. So, you see, these are the, uh, one of the problems, but the other problem is also that, you know, when you start to talk about people, you talk about six billion uh, people, and now we are talking about a world that is, <coughs> is completely interconnected. You know, you cannot just look at UK, you have to consider, you know, we have millions of passengers every day, as we will see in the world. So, you know, you have a lot of uh, complexity or complications that we have to consider in these problems, you know, that given the large number of heterogeneous individuals, uh, a huge range of time and scales, uh, non-linearity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are other limits that are more intrinsic, and some of those I will pick up on them at the end of the talk. The first is the lack of large-scale data. You know, social science has a huge tradition, and again, I, I apologize to any social scientists uh, here uh, uh, in, in the lack of details in how to cite. But you know, there is a, a make one of the major issues, as pointed out 100 years ago by social scientists, is how to go from the social item or the molecules, so the small groups, to the collective states. You know, when you need measures on millions of people, and you know you have to understand the collective behavior that arises because of these millions of people. Uh, and then there are other things like you know understanding the feedback loop that actually your own uh, anticipation may have on the system, uh, formal models for understanding the adaptation of people, etc., etc. So there are a lot of uh, of, of of limits uh, and and issues that have prevented us to be very predictive in in certain. Uh, uh, on certain systems that uh, where the social uh, uh, social component is extremely important. Uh, in the last years, let's say in the last ten years, something is changing, and this is because uh, we are able to to do so. We are going more and more in what is called uh, the, the, the society tomography, but there are many ways. Uh, some people uh, like to. Uh, to say that we are entering the, the, uh, the age of the social colliders. So, you know, in physics there are these large uh, hadron colliders, you know, these rings in which you inject particles, they go one against each other, and from the pattern of what happens during these collisions, you try to understand the law of physics. So the idea is, can we get a large uh, social collider? We 
which we, we get, you know, the traces of people, and we understand, you know, the basic statistical laws of, of, of social systems by, by looking at those traces. Well, paradox, this is a paradox, but actually, somehow, the information technology revolution and the internet is creating a kind of large social collateral. So every day, what we do leaves traces on the internet. Everything is digitalized. From your uh, purchases on, uh, on, uh, on, on the internet, uh, your uh, travel tickets, uh, uh, the bills and the money that you exchange every day. So everything is tracked, everything is digital. So data set that 10 years ago were impossible even to collect are now just you know, one click away. So basically it's an amount of information that we can uh, collect and also we have the computational power to manipulate. And so we can start thinking, well, can we use all that to inform computational methods that are able to, to, to deal with six billion to start uh, elaborating the anticipation or prediction on large-scale technosocial systems. Uh, and I'm not talking about this last part, you know, the pervasive and embedded technology part, that probably some of you know, but in most of the places now there are sensors in, <laughs> and, and you can count people, you can look at, there are, you know, hours of video, Etc. Etc. So there is, you know, now we are really into uh, into into a control of what what we do on the large scale that is is amazing. Another example <coughs> that we we need to uh, I think is has to be uh, brought on is the issue of mobile telephone. Uh, each one of you now has a mobile telephone in the pocket. I'm pretty sure that well, I hope you are on mute, but in general it's switched on. And this telephone is sending a signal to, to, a, to the nearest cell. And actually the provider, your telephone provider, because he's billing you, has to record where you are and who you are calling. Well, the precision of that is not very large in, in rural areas because the cell might be you know, a few miles uh, large. But in a city, actually, the company triangulates with the different cells and they know quite well where you are. If you have a GPS phone, so something that is a last generation phone, they know almost exactly where you are. And all those data are there. So basically, this, uh, if you ask a telephone provider, you can have a map of what people does, you know, on a resolution that is completely unprecedented. And there are papers recently appeared in major journals like Nature and Science that now are working with those data. So you can imagine what we can get out of, of those data that we can use in this, in this effort. Uh, now we will focus mostly on those kind of data because I, I want to work on, on epidemiology and I want to work on the spreading of infectious diseases, human transmissible diseases. So means that basically what we do in terms of mobility is the key to understand how the disease will progress. Okay? So we are the carriers of the disease, we can spread the disease if you want to know how the pandemic moves from Mexico to the rest of the world, you need to have the most reliable and accurate map of what we do every day in our mobility pattern, in our interactions. And you have, we have a lot of data on that at this point, many, many, many levels. Uh, what are the major obstacles aside the conceptual and, and, and data obstacles are 
also data that probably obstacles that were, were at the beginning, for instance, in weather forecast. These are all issues related to, to data, and the divide that we have in different communities, different expertise, different way of collecting data, uh, the fact that they are collected in different disciplines and the language of, uh, across different disciplines is not easy. Uh, and then there are a series of, ser of serious uh, ethical and privacy issues that I'm not going to touch, but of course are there and should be tackled uh, alongside what, what I'm telling. Because when I'm talking about telephone, I'm talking about your life, I'm talking about geolocalizing your life, I'm talking about knowing who you call uh, the most. And, and all these things, you know, if we think about epidemiology, it means also to collect data on the health of people. So, you know, all these things uh, involve uh, huge ethical and privacy issues that at the moment are not solved. If you work with data at, at the worldwide scale, you will find such a heterogeneous uh, scenario of what the ethical uh, and privacy, or, or how the ethical and privacy issues are, are, are handled, that it's, it's amazing. In some countries, you can do whatever you want. In some other countries, you, you cannot touch those data. Full stop. So, you know, here is where, again, if we want to move and, and, and go from the study, I, I'm not talking about the single individuals, of course, but if we need to, to develop, uh, uh, you know, a regulamentation, you know, the, 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 the rules that allow us to go from the social atom to the, to the social aggregate states. Well, why to start with, with epidemiology? Again, I apologize to any uh, epidemiologist that probably knows these things very well and is pretty poor by that. But for anyone else that is not an epidemiologist, this is why one starts to ask questions about anticipation on infectious diseases. Because if you look, for instance, at a simple emerging disease like a new strain of influenza, you do a little calculation and you sum up all the casualties of the, from, the world of, from the first world war in the United States till today. And basically, you know, the number of that uh, is lower than a single pandemic influenza of the 1918. And if you think about the seasonal average flu year, it's uh, about 36,000 uh, people uh, lost uh, just in the United States. Uh, well, let me say, it, uh, because otherwise one, uh, especially after the example of this last pandemic, could say, well, but this is... This is not realistic. You are talking about the 1918. And yes, it's true, in the 1918, uh, basically, we didn't have antibiotics, so any complication arising from influenza was, we were not able to treat. But actually, if you go back to that time, it was not even clear that influenza was uh, transmitted by a virus. So basically, you know, it was just a, you know, a, a complete different era. So if you think in terms of uh, what could happen with an influence, it's very difficult to imagine that something like that could happen again. Uh, on the other end, there are two elements to consider. The first one is that in basically two years to sweep across the world. And just basically because people were traveling by ship in very small flows. 
Now, every day in the United States, this is what happens. These are Federal Aviation Administration data. Now it's night in the United States. You will see that the East Coast is waking up. The first wave of international flights from Europe, then the Central States, the West Coast. The last to wake up is Hawaii, over there. You know, and every day, millions of people, every day, is traveling you know, in the world like that. So, of course, instead of taking two years, you know, we had that from the first, basically, uh, warning of... Mm -hmm. Always like that. Hopefully, it's... So nowadays, you know, from, from the first warning of the uh, WHO to uh, basically declare a full-scale uh, pandemic, uh, it took basically, I think, two months, two months and a half. So the time scale has completely changed, and give, that give us, uh, gives us much less time to react to our planning and policy making. And at the same time, another thing that we always have to remember is that not the entire world is the United States or the UK. And so there are most of the places in which basically antibiotics are still nowadays a luxury. And so basically, you know, we don't know what's happening in those countries, but you know, very uh, 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 strong uh, pandemic striking in those places uh, might uh, still be comparable to what have been the uh, so what happened? What is the state of the act? Of course, you know, this uh, attempts to anticipate what happens in the, in the future as now a tradition in epidemiology. And this is a kind of diagram of what are the various approaches. Uh, let me say, this is the scale of the system you are looking at. And this is basically the uh, scale of your resolution. <laughs> of course, you can have a very small scale. This is the smallest scale you can, you can, you can uh, decide to work with, the single individual. And when I talk about agent-based model, I'm talking about those uh, models like uh, the models developed uh, by Neil Ferguson at Imperial College uh, or Hyra Lungini uh, in Seattle. Uh, other people in which you basically map entire population at the level of the single individual with the accuracy of the household, workplace, and what they do on a hourly basis. Okay, these are incredibly sophisticated and uh, massive piece of work that, of course, uh, hit the data and CPU limit at the level of one or two countries. First of all, because then even the computational power we have nowadays start to, uh, how to say, to be problematic. If you have really billions of individuals on the scale of MINA with all this information to simulate, is, is, it takes a long time. And that also because you don't get high resolution data enough for most of the places in the world. So you can get those for UK, United States, other places, but of course you cannot have in many other uh, uh, areas of the world. Then there are many, uh, intermediate uh, things that you can do. One uh, way to work is also at the level of structure uh, subpopulation. Basically, what you define, and this is what I will show to you, this is what we have been doing uh, uh, in the last uh, six to seven years, uh, and there are also other groups working in, 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 that, in that area, 
is to create very accurate structured metapopulation models that have, uh, how to say, in my opinion, have, you know, couple of advantages. Well, the advantage is that they are still treatable and there's a trade-off with the computational power that allows you to do a lot of things that you would see. So like very uh, detailed statistical analysis because you can do millions of runs. They can allow you to work at the worldwide scale and as we will see, this is uh, very important if you want to have a timing pattern of the disease because you somehow have a self-consistent way to take into account the traveling of people. Uh, and so on and so forth. The other way that I consider uh, interesting for those models is that you can start to increase uh, uh, the details that you plug in the, in the model in a progressive way. So you can add ingredients one by one so that you don't have to throw everything in the magical box since the beginning, and, uh, but you can discriminate the various uh, uh, ingredients that you plug in, in the model and define at which scale they become relevant, uh, at which uh, uh, which part of, uh, of the data that, that you are plugging in is uh, is uh, is relevant. Uh, also, with this methodology, sooner or later you are going to hit the same limits. And in principle, the two things should collide on the same point. Because at a certain point, you add so many so much so many details into a structured metapopulation model that you get the same resolution of, uh, of an agent-based model. Well, what we did, <coughs> this is to give you an idea of what the, how the model works. I'm not going to be technical, but I want to show you what is the philosophy. So, first of all, you work with various data layers. The first layer is population data. So that what does it mean? That we know, we need to know where the where where we live, and you know you have to take uh, the, the, our planet, divide in little cell, and know how many people are in each of those cells. Uh, this is not work that we do. Actually, there are very nice, interesting projects. One is uh, from the National Space Agency in the United States, another one is at Columbia University, the Landscan project or the grid, the world map that basically measure with a resolution of five by five miles uh, the population in the world. Okay, this is a very sophisticated uh, methods that cross-correlate and analyze data from census bureau, uh, satellite image uh, to define the, 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 you know, the, the, the amount of lights that, that we produce, etc., etc. So there are sophisticated inference methods that actually provide very precise uh, high-resolution data for the well, that's your layer, okay? That's the basic layer you want, to, you, you want to do. And for instance, this is the data you work with. You know, the white areas means population. It's the, the, the lighter is the map and the more people are in, that, in, in those areas. The second part is the transportation. So because if we want to simulate and to anticipate uh, the epidemic uh, evolution, we need to know how we move. And there are, of course, different scales at this point. The first one is the commuting one. So we, everybody, we go to work, we go to, to many places, and basically there are huge flows of people up to, up to 50 miles every day, back and forth. And then there are the long-range traveling that we do. So basically, that traces that the federal aviation is recording. So people traveling by airplane across the world. Well, paradoxically, this is the easiest part to get, because you can go to the International Aviation Association and say, please, could you 
give me the dump of uh, all the flight routes, all the airplanes, and all the seats available on those, uh, on those routes. And the International Aviation Association asks you a fee, but can provide that. So the fee is very big, but you, know, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can get those data. Of course, it's a mess to, to, to work with that. You have to clean it for your purposes, whatever. But they are digitalized, so again, it's something that you can do. And there is a standard. You can go to other agency that works with the International uh, Aviation Association, ask for the same data, and they are really the same. So that's, that's good. This is probably the safest uh, set you can, you can work with. <coughs> and especially, it's a set that is predictive. <coughs> because uh, pipelines have to basically define their schedule one year to one year and a half in advance. So you know how many seats will be available on each route from today to one year and a half in advance. This part instead is very messy. Because, of course, there are very good data in some part of the world, and basically no data in other places of the world. So you need to construct inference, etc., uh, etc. Et but, you know, in general, is it now possible to get an imagery of, of what we do in terms of, of commuting every, every day? It's still, you know, this is hard work. Uh, uh, we have data from five continents for about 40 to 50 countries, but still, still we are working on that. And finally, you create this, this network. It's not very visible here, but basically this is a, a mobility network that tells, uh, tells you every day what we do in terms of long-range mobility and commuting patterns. So for each place, we know how many people will take an airplane and will go to another destination, and how many will commute from one place and back to their, to their place at the end. This is a model of mobility. Basically, you can do and, and model uh, uh, basically the worldwide mobility. And then you overlay this with the population layer. And you basically create what is a kind of synthetic world. Okay, here the colors is, again, is the population. So, uh, and then there is also the network. So basically, you have this synthetic world to work with. And, uh, what is left is just now to run the disease. Well, that's not what is just left, because this is the most important part. And this is basically, uh, you know, you can work with, the, with all the, the tradition of mathematical epidemiology. So you usually define states for each individual. Each disease has a certain compartment, has a, what is called the etiology of the disease, and there are parameters, etc., etc. At this point, you, in principle, you can plug these parameters and a certain number of initial conditions in your world and then look at how the disease will spread. Okay? If you, within a population, well, this is really probably too simple for, for anyone, but you know, basically epidemiological models, uh, uh, if you want the basic one, an SIR, please, no one of will use an SIR model in a, for realistic things, but this is just to let you understand how it works. You have individuals that in contact with infected individuals transition to an infectious state with a certain, uh, certain rate, with a certain rate uh, can recover or die or many other things. And what you do basically is to write equations that can be from the very simple deterministic differential equation that tells you the evolution within a population of the disease 
to more uh, discrete stochastic approaches or even agent-based models that start to add to each individual different tags and attributes and so on and so forth. Your, your main issue is always to you know, insert one infected individual, it's actually not one, you know, cluster of infected people or whatever, and then look at how you know, this quantity, these infectious individuals recovered, uh, susceptible, etc., change in the, in the single population. The problem now is that we don't have a population, we have many populations, and these populations are connected to the mobility network of our daily uh, activities. So if you want, the mechanistic metapopulation model is this one, this is a kind of culture, but this is it. You have a kind of network in, each, in which each node is a subpopulation with a certain number of individuals, which are the individuals resident in that area. And then you have connection if you have people traveling from one place to the other. And of course, the disease is spread when some infectious individuals, but in general are not infectious individuals, are the people which are exposed or latent and then will carry the disease in another place, will propagate the epidemic. Within each subpopulation, you can use uh, different methodology that can go from the simple compartmental models, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to uh, as I was saying, you know, the, 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 the continuous uh, uh, deterministic one, till, you know, very complicated stochastic approaches. This is to give you an idea of what subpopulation structure actually you really get in, in realistic models. So this is in the United States. Each of these cells, we know the exact population within the granularity of this uh, grid. And then, of course, you do what is called a boronoid tessellation of the world in, around the major transportation hubs, uh, so that they define homogeneous subpopulation that will travel and we commute from those transportation hubs, basically. So you have people, for instance, all these gray lines that you see on, 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 on the screen are actually are uh, non-stop connection by Arlen in the United States. And then, of course, you have to consider also that basically people commute with the nearby regions by this commuting network. But the time scales are completely different. In this case, we're talking about hours, if you are talking about this traveling these days, if you are talking about uh, the flows uh, among certain connections, you might talk about a few hundred passengers. In some other cases, it's thousands and thousands of passengers. So you have all the complexities of a very uh, multi-scale system that, that you have to take into, a, into account. And this is basically what creates a, a problem, and at the same time, then some cases is also whether an advantage uh, is that we, we are dealing with a very highly complex systems. So doing things that reduce the modeling to homogeneous assumption, mean field things, it usually creates problems. Doesn't really give you a good description of what's going on because you are killing noise. Why? What you want to keep in the model is truly the basically the heterogeneous heterogeneous nature of those systems. Uh, this is just the only formula I it's just to show off, so don't, don't, don't read it. Uh, uh, it's just to tell you that, you know, that there is a lot of things that you have to consider because you don't want to have, since you have time scales that goes from one hour to days and days, and you don't want to integrate all of them in a, from, on, on the microscopic scale, you need to develop effective, uh, effective methodologies, and these are 
For instance, what we use for the commuting is a time scale separation that has been developed by Keeling uh, and, uh, and Rohan in 2002 and Sat and Spin in other time and actually is equivalent to, to what we would call to in physics to the born Oppenheimer approximation. So basically you integrate out uh, the fast mode of the dynamics into effective uh, forces while you keep integrating uh, uh, microscopically the long, uh, the long range uh, basically traveling uh, by airline. So there are many, many uh, technicalities that one, one should go. And also one has always to keep in mind that somehow our world has changed and you really need a network uh, thinking somehow in this, in this game. This is the black death in, uh, in, in, the 13th, in the 14th century. And basically what happens is that the black death uh, went through Europe uh, like a kind of wave. Well, of course, it's, it's a gross approximation, this one. But, you know, basically it swept the country with a certain velocity, like a wave. Basically, every time that there was a touchdown on the coast, then it was progressing with a certain velocity on, the, on land. And that's because people mainly was traveling, uh, you know, little amount, you know, by on the average a few kilometers per day to go to the nearest village. And that was basically the way that disease was transported across Europe. Now, if you think about SARS uh, in, in 2001, 2002, the things is completely different. You know, the, the, the disease dynamics is much more erratic. See, you know, it appeared in China, then went to Hong Kong, then from Hong Kong, United States and Canada, then back to the Far East, uh, and so on and so forth. So basically, now, really, you have to consider the, the, the fact that we live in a network of communication that is mostly determined by our long-range transportation needs. Okay? And you have to take those into, into account if you want to understand what will happen. So basically, on this side, you can write a deterministic differential equation with a diffusion term, and more or less the model would work. Here is completely different. You don't have analytical tools, and what you go in most of the cases to rely on computational approaches. Uh, well, before we go into the very detailed thing, let me uh, just give you does, for instance, complex uh, approaches uh, or, uh, you know, other techniques coming from, uh, from, 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 from mathematics uh, uh, an understanding of what's going in a system as big as you know this worldwide simulation that we that we build. Yes, and actually, you know, if you think in very simplistic terms, what we are describing in, uh, as an epidemiological model is a reaction diffusion system in which you have particles that moves, diffuse, and reacts with a certain uh, with certain reaction rates. The diffusion uh, you can take at the homogeneous diffusion rate on the network, but you could take whatever you want and do more and more complicated models that at certain point you'll approach the realistic ones. Well, if you work with this kind of framework, analytically you can understand a lot of things. For instance, there is one, one issue. Let's imagine that you have a disease within a certain subpopulation. If the, the probability to travel is very, very, very small, uh, is most likely the disease will not able to spread to other subpopulations because by the time that the epidemic has died in that subpopulation, no one has been able to visit or travel to other, to other subpopulations. It might happen in one or two subpopulations, but at the end, if you look at a kind of branching process at the subpopulation level, you won't be able to do that. 
So one of the first things that you think in terms of preventing uh, an epidemic is to say, well, let's find a kind of global threshold uh, for this diffusion rate, that if we reduce the diffusion rate be below a certain critical value, the epidemic is not able to spread anymore globally. Well, if you do simulations, and this has been done by many groups in different places, and actually, for instance, you close uh, high traffic by a 20% or a 50%, this would not be feasible in the real world. It would collapse completely the airline industry, and, and, and then you can imagine what would happen to markets and so on and so forth. And you look at what you achieve in terms of reducing an epidemic. These are, you know, the red cures are baseline cures for, for an influenza-like disease freely spreading in the world. And the other cures are for 20% and 50% traffic reduction. As you see, you basically get nothing. Uh, and here there are two issues. One, that you don't get any benefit uh, in times. So you don't slow the spreading of the epidemics. And then you can understand from the extreme of probability methods, you see that actually the, 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 even if you restrict traveling, uh, this has a logarithmic effect on the timing. But then you could say, well, at a certain point I hit a threshold, and then there is no spreading anymore. So I can really contain the disease. I'm not going to slow down. I want to contain the disease. Yeah, it's true. You can do analytical calculation and show that there is such a threshold for the mobility. And this is the expression for the threshold. PC would be basically the critical diffusion rate below which it is impossible to, uh, uh, to spread the disease globally. Well, you can do a, well, more or less approximation. Of course, you cannot get analytical expression for the entire system. But what you get is an approximate expression, and then you can feel a bit of the values that you find worldwide for real systems. And you see that basically the critical threshold that would avoid the spreading of the uh, worldwide would be something that a diffusion rate of 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 6. And what you get is that actually the real diffusion rate is 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 4. These are arbitrary units. I don't want to get into the technical things. But you see that there is one order of magnitude difference. So that tells you that if you want to contain an epidemic by reducing traveling of people, you need a tenfold traffic reduction. So you need basically to restrict by 90 to 99% your, your travel mobility. That is impossible. In the modern world, it's impossible. So for instance, you give up on, on, on this. Uh, this has been, you know, you can find analytically because you work with simplified model that takes into account what are the main ingredients of the complexity of the system. That in this case is the heterogeneity of the network. Again, the fact that you have a very heterogeneous network. And at the same time, you have also a very heterogeneous weight. So traffic flow on each of those connections. And you can do other understanding of the system, like for instance, it's possible to define some general pathways for the epidemic. So there are some connections so that if you know that there is a disease in a certain uh, areas, you will know that with a 95% confidence interval, the next move of the epidemic will be along a certain transmission route. And this is again because you have a trade-off between the complexity of the network and the, and the heterogeneity of the traffic flow. So there are things that we can, we can use actually to, uh, to understand the system. So now, what is the, the, the game? Uh, we have, this is what we have in the modeling. Other approaches are more or less the same things. And these are a lot of data. And then, of course, what people have done for a long time is to create intervention scenarios. So you can try to play with uh, 
synthetic diseases and you say, well, let's look what will happen if I have an influenza-like disease, I do a certain vaccination, contact tracing, and so on and so forth. Uh, all that is a very nice exercise. However, you know, it's different if you, if you say, well, let's play the game for real. So we have a pandemic, a real pandemic, and then we want to see what kind of anticipation or prediction, between quotes, whatever, uh, we can get by using such methodologies. So the first do is, can we do projections in real time? So is it possible to do these things like weather forecast, not to, pro to, to, to have, you know, to model the, the pandemic two years after, you know? This is, it's interesting theoretically, but it's not what you, what you want to do. The second question is what we do need to get good and reliable projections. So what are the data that we still miss or what are our limits in these predictions? And then, of course, to test and have a validation of what you do. So are the anticipation reliable and to which extent? Now, no one was a pandemic, but you know, the past uh, um, February, we got a pandemic after many, many years. And so you start working with it, you start playing with it. So these were the data coming from Mexico uh, initially after the WH warning. And here you start uh, to understand what kind of problem you have. Because these are the data, the number of cases, uh, uh, the confirmed cases in Mexico according to the health authorities in Mexico. You have those numbers. And what, in general, you can do at the beginning is to try to fit this behavior to get the basic parameter of the disease that you have to plug into your simulation and to look at the global spread. Well, these numbers are very, very unreliable. How much unreliable? I will tell you in a minute. But, you know, here, just keep in mind this. These are the number of cases confirmed at the end of, uh, I think, of April or something like that. I will see the date. So 5,000. Okay. Uh, well, what we did is to start, you know, we set up with the help of many agencies and things a kind of uh, uh, prediction uh, uh, infrastructure, computational infrastructure, and there is something that is good. Influenza, uh, we know a lot about influenza. Another disease would have been a much more tougher problem. Influenza is transmitted, we know a lot, a lot about influenza transmission, basically it's this, okay? So this is the way, yeah. this is a high resolution camera. Every time we sneeze, this is more or less what we do. Influenza is in these uh, microparticles. The microparticles can get inhaled by, by you if you're close by, you can touch a surface where somebody has sneezed a bit before, you can touch his hands, etc., etc. okay? And there is something much more that we know. Basically, you know, thanks to the epidemiologists and mathematical modelers, we know a lot about the, the structure of the disease. We know that there are some certain stages the disease goes through, the susceptible, from the susceptible, then you get latent, uh, you get a lot of asymptomatic infectious people. So people that carry the disease, but basically they, they do not have fever, they do not have the, 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 the clinical manifestation of the disease. Uh, all these... This structure is very stable across the different strains. Most of these parameters are also quite stable across the different strains, in the sense that if you think about uh, 
the number of uh, asymptomatic individuals. You know, it's not going from 1% to 100%, you know. It's usually something that is between 30% uh, to 50%, etc., etc. So, it's, uh, you know, somehow this helps because you constrain your space uh, of parameters and the sensitivity analysis you have to do. Uh, there are two issues, there are a few parameters instead that changes a lot across the strains. So, the first one is the effect of seasonality. It's not clear, you know, we know that influenza is a seasonal disease, it has a peak during winter, it's depressed during the summer. How much? Well, nobody would, would tell you the modeling is, you know, there are tables, effective methodology to get uh, this into the model, but it's one thing that you have to try to ascertain from data, case by case. And then the transmissibility associated with the infectious period. Now again, I ask, I apologize with, uh, with epidemiologists or mathematical epidemiologists, this is an oversimplification, but basically what you do is that you what you want to know is what is the reproductive number of the disease, actually you want more than that. But the reproductive number is uh, uh, basically just to understand is how many other infectious individual each infectious person will generate in a fully susceptible population. So you have a, one infected and if you infect on average other two people, you have a branching process and the disease progresses. Of course, if this uh, reproductive number is smaller or equal to one, the disease cannot spread. On average, at least it survives one by one, but in general it decays also because there is noise. If it's low, larger than one, then you can have a macroscopic outbreak in the population. Okay. However, how much big is this R0 determines the velocity of spreading of the disease, how many individuals will be affected in the population, etc., etc. And you can go from different scenarios that are mild, <coughs> medium, high, very high, the end of the world, fast. <coughs> Okay. Uh, well, this is not enough. You cannot just do that. You know, if you want to simulate, a, if you want to have anticipation that are slightly reliable, at least you need to do more. You really need to know this number to a good extent. You need to have seasonality, and you really need to have also other parameters like the basically the generation, what is called the generation time. So how much time you are infectious because this also determines the time scale of the disease. So, how can we do that in a self-consistent way? Well, one way is to that you look at uh, community outbreaks or the data that you have and you fit the, basically the, 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 uh, the initial stage of the disease and, and from this data you can uh, estimate, you can fit the reproductive number, basically from the growth, growth factor of the epidemic. Uh, and this is the first problem. If you work, work worldwide, uh, you really, uh, in real time, you don't know how much reliable are those data. So the problem is, there is any other way that we can do. Yes, there is a, another way that we can do. We know that some countries, especially Western countries, when there is a declared warning for an emerging disease, are very careful in screening their borders. So they are very effective in detecting the first cases of the disease. This gives you a timeline of the invasion of different areas of the disease. So the United States found that the first case was on a certain date, Canada on another date, etc., etc. 
Now, what you can do is, well, if we have this huge infrastructure, so the, the animal time is mostly determined by two things. One is the human mobility, how much people were traveling from that region, from the infected region to other regions. And then the disease, so how many cases of the disease you have there. Since you know very well what is the mobility from data, you can backtrack the transmissibility of the disease by statistical analysis. And what you do? Well, you say, I simulate, I, I get a certain set of parameters, I simulate a few thousands epidemics starting from there with those parameters, and then I look at what is the probability that, for instance, the arrival date in the United States is a certain, certain, is a certain date. Well, at this point you can do something very ambitious <laughs> You can say, well, let me look at the entire space of the parameter. Let me get for each of these points, for this grid in the space of the parameter, a likelihood analysis of desirable times in different countries. So basically what you do, again, is to use the transportation network to infer on the disease. You know the arrival time in each of those countries. You select uh, a value, a set of parameters, and you find you know, where the actual arrival time is on each of the distribution that you have. And then, from there, basically, you just construct your likelihood function. You construct a likelihood function for one parameter, and then you will have a maximum of the likelihood function for a subset of parameters with a certain confidence interval, etc., etc., that are the most likely parameter that produce the timeline that you observe for the data so far. So you can get the first couple of months of the epidemics, do the likelihood analysis. At this point, you have the parameter to feed your global model. And then you can use those parameters and the run of the global model on the large scale to anticipate what, how it will unfold the epidemics in the other countries. That was basically what we got for the H1 and 1 epidemic. So this is best estimate, confidence interval, these are all numbers. One good thing that we realize immediately is that if you look at the, at the transmissibility of the disease, the R0, basically because also of seasonality, uh, you have that, you know, the transmissibility of the disease was never high. And that's why, why the H1 pandemic was not so, you know, so immediate. So it actually, it takes some time and, uh, well, it takes some time. It was, well, we will see in, a, in a one minute that it took less time than expected. But, you know, it was not very, somehow very aggressive. We can consider as a mild pandemic because that number never went uh, above 1.5 at the, at the peak. Uh, this is something, uh, let me see if I can show you. If you have that, you have a first uh, level of prediction. This is, for instance, you can construct, uh, if it's possible to see it, the invasion tree of the disease. That is uh, the place in Mexico, La Gloria, this little place. Then you get other cities, then United States, Europe. Then after a certain date, most of the infection were coming from United States and Europe, not anymore from Mexico. And you will see how the disease progresses, basically, progressing <coughs> in the world. 
you see that at the end of the day, uh, you get all, uh, all places uh, with, with cases imported and, and the world is emerging. So the first prediction that you can do is a kind of timeline. This is a likelihood uh, timeline. So this would be, again, something that is a 90% is confidence interval three of transmission. You can have variation, of course, you have noise on that. But you can, you, know, you can have the first prediction. So how, where you have to expect your epidemics come from and, and your invasion tree in, in the worldwide. Uh, okay. And this is to go back. The first thing that we did was to try to, to say, how much reliable were the Mexican data? Uh, okay, look, this is the uh, Mexican official report uh, on April the 30th, 3,350 people. The first estimate that was from the WHO intervention team, Ferguson and other people, say, well, look, this number, you know, the confidence interval is 2,000 to 280,000, and probably is much closer to, to the 200,000 than, than, than the 3,000. Then there has been uh, uh, the estimate of Lipschitz that tells that the lower bound, so the lower bound for the number of cases, uh, this is just an estimate for the lower bound, was between 100,000 and 400,000. And then actually, if you do the simulations and you look at backtrack, backtrack the things uh, uh, with the parameter from the likelihood analysis, etc., you find something that is between 100,000 and 1.5 million. So at this point, you see immediately that the data from the field were at least two orders of magnitude off, at least. So that's why you know, I think it's very important to consider methodology like uh, this one, in which you backtrack parameters from data, high uh, quality data, for instance, from transportation and population, then from the field report and surveillance, because this is too noisy. And here there are 300, three, uh, Three to two to three order of magnitude of difference. Of course, there are also there may be error also in the detection of the time arrival of the disease that we are using. But these are errors that may be one week, two weeks is not one order of magnitude. So you you can understand that it's completely different to the kind of error you are introducing. Well, then you can start to play things and see. Well, can we determine, for instance, the hotspot in the United States at the early stage of the epidemic? Well, this is the map that we, is from real cases. Uh, again, you have to use some multiplier method that the CDC uses because the actual number of cases detected are much less. And this is our predictions uh, two weeks in advance. And so uh, you see, of course, the two maps are not identical, but more or less you get the very same hotspots and the very same areas. If you look at uh, places like, this is a snapshot of Mexico, uh, of, uh, of Texas, you see that really you get more or less the same, uh, the same hotspot. So this is telling you that somehow, at least two weeks in advance, you are able to do some anticipation. Well, that might not be, not save the world, but at least you know what to expect. Uh, of course there are differences, you know. Well, this is because the method is not, uh, this is not deterministic, so actually, it's impressive that he's able to find places like, like those because you won't expect such an accuracy. Uh, you told me I have to short things. So then the other exercise in terms of anticipation is to say, well, it's July. 
can we anticipate uh, the peak of the epidemic in the next season, in the winter? So now here is the big issue. Usually influenza has a peak in January, February, from time to time also early March. So you want to know if this will be, uh, if a pandemic will be according to this timeline or it will be anticipated. That tells you a lot in terms of the policy, for instance, how you roll out the vaccination campaign. Will you have time to roll out, roll out a mass vaccination campaign or not? So that's another kind of prediction that with this model you can do. If you look at the level of a single country, you need a lot of data on the importation of cases, what happened with the detected cases. And of course, at a certain point, you cannot keep track of all the people with infections or exposed that are coming in. So you don't have access to those data. With methodologies like this one, you have ab initio simulations. Because basically, you start with your initial condition, and the systems automatically you know, couples all the regions in the world and will tell you how many infected people will travel from each place to the other self-consistently in the methodology. You don't have to get any external input and this is why you hope to get good data on the timeline because the initial cases, the number of imported cases is the most relevant quantity. So that's why, this is the reason why we published in, uh, in August, uh, you know, a paper with the peak time for all for 220 countries in the world from the methodology that, uh, that we developed. And now we have the results. So, okay, the, the red curve is the data from the surveillance, and the, 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 our uh, shaded area, you know, this is the, basically the, the, what we find numerically, plus the 95% confidence interval. Well, if you look, basically, we are, you know, look at the United States, Canada, where we have the better data, of course, and you are right spot in. So, and we are talking about predicting something that was in November, October, November, instead of January. So, you would have expected something here, okay? And then you have most of the other countries that falls in quite, quite nicely, nicely. You have problem, for instance, in France and Hungary. It took us uh, three weeks to understand what's going, what was going on there. Actually, there is an offset of two weeks, and we learned that France and Hungary and another place that now I don't I don't find it here, they basically have a kind of closure of three weeks of uh, uh, of most of the uh, public places, school, etc., etc., for a winter uh, winter break. I don't know, so something like that. You know, well, that's France. I, I no offense to, to French people, but. Uh, so, of course, that creates a delay on, on the epidemic because most of the people, you know, they, they, the mobility that you have during those weeks is different. And so we were two weeks off that is quite, uh, that, 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 that was quite light. But again, we are talking about two weeks off, you know, of the prediction. So if you look at the timeline, this is really very accurate. You see that there are problems, for instance, in Russia. Uh, this is because I should be more precise. Russia is a very big country goes from the Far East to the, to the European Russia. You have to break down things, otherwise you get an average profile that doesn't make any sense. And, and for instance, this is what we did for India. India, you see that in general you have two peaks, and this is what has been found from the data, and, and you need you know, to break down from the Southern India, Northern India, and so on and so forth. So you can get accurate prediction on a much, more smaller, uh, much smaller scale. Uh, 
From this prediction, it was quite easy to say that any mass vaccination campaign was impossible. Because with an early peak in November, it was impossible to have time with the release of the vaccine at the half of October to have really herd immunity in the population, so a mass vaccination by, by November. So it was rational to say, look, let's do prioritize vaccination campaign, etc., etc. Again, this is another kind of prediction. You know, it's not, you know, it might not be as accurate as we would intend the prediction in physics or other areas, but you can start to say, look, given the time constraints and given what you anticipate, you know that with good confidence, you will not able to do that, that job, and then you need to, to do another, another strategy. So, you know, you start to get prediction in a way. And you can also do tell a bit on what you could have been doing. Like for instance, do you want to delay the peak? Well, if you do a systematic treatment of all the detected cases, of 30% of the detected cases with antiviral drugs, you can slow down the epidemic and bring the peak, you know, in late November, early December in most of the places, actually also late December. So you know something else, this is information, is anticipation that then you de decide not to use because you say, well, you don't want to use a mass, you don't want to have a massive use of antiviral drugs because you uh, fear that the virus could become resistant and you need those uh, drugs for the uh, really uh, case with complications, okay? Since the disease is mild, it's not worth to play this game and this was not, was not used by, basically by any country, at most uh, the treatment was of for 5% of the cases. Well, the other things to do in this area then are how you talk with policy makers, and that's another, another issue of the, uh, related with predictions, and how you can communicate results, computational results to policy makers. I think there is no actual time to discuss that. So, so far so good, the, uh, the picture was to, uh, how to say, you would say that it was too emphatic, you know, everything was right, so you were able to predict everything, what, what do you, so you know, you have everything right on spot. But it's not true in the sense that uh, this pandemic was a very special case, in the sense that it was so mild that uh, our social behavior didn't change, didn't change at all. And so these models are very good if the society is business as usual, because all the data that you have are data from business as usual. The problem is that, you know, there are the two of the questions that I was highlighting, uh, oops. No. These two questions, you know, there is a problem. First of all, if the disease would have been really dramatic, you can imagine people dying, you know, uh, intensive care units crowded uh, uh, with people, etc. Well, the social behavior would have been changing a lot. At that point, the model cannot tell you anything because you do not travel like you used to do. You do not go to movie theaters. You don't go. You don't bring your kids to school. At that point, uh, the model falls apart. And we need really to get better understanding of that. Otherwise, any anticipation, if you, if if there is an adaptation of society, it becomes impossible. The other part that is more philosophical is that let's imagine that we take really for uh, uh, we take seriously those predictions 
and then you start to communicate to the public saying, well, like weather forecast, you know, the peak of the epidemic will be between uh, November 15 and November 17. Well, people reading those on the newspaper will change their behavior as well. So somehow your predictions are part of the dynamical systems. And this is something that, that, that you are not able to, to deal with again. So there is something here that are, how to say, uh, it's good to do this exercise as far as things are, you know, business as usual. As soon as you have this kind of complication, uh, of course, we lack formal models, uh, we lack uh, data, uh, we lack a lot of things that we would need to close this loop if it is possibly, uh, if it's, we can possibly close. I'm not even sure that this can, can, can be done. Um, well, I think I stop here and then if there are questions. Thank you very much.